Welcome to Astonishing Legends. What are you doing? Well, well, I figured you you know you can't you use that you have your guest. I know, you but know, I have a good not your show. I have a good voice. Just just you don't have to use it now. Just at some point you have that. It's recorded. It sounds great. We don't really need it. Who We're knows? Not. But did you have? Did it record? Yeah, it recorded. Okay, fine. All right, uh, you'll, I, you'll use it. Welcome to the Astonishing Legends <laughs> podcast. See, that and it's good. <laughs> Welcome to Astonishing Legends. That was Mark DeAndre. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. Hollywood is a place where they'll pay you $1,000 for a kiss and 50 cents for your soul. Marilyn Monroe. Everyone knows that most movies have happy endings, but the life of a star in Hollywood doesn't always turn out that way. Tonight we're going to be talking about that and taking a closer look at one starlet who literally became a prisoner in her own home. It's just like a perfect metaphor. She was trapped in this place. I mean, she's kept getting fan mail up till the end, supposedly. Tonight's show, which is also our first show, features a friend of ours who will be a guest from time to time, Mark DeAndre. Hello. We felt like this was a good show to lead out with because it gives you a taste of how we feel we're different from other shows in this genre. Right. Now, Astonishing Legends isn't just about the paranormal. It's really about any strange story with details that may never be known or things that aren't supposed to happen, and yet they seem to. Now, this episode, for example, is mostly about death and how when it comes for you, you don't have a whole lot of say in the matter. Now, why don't you tell our listeners how Mark became such a big part of this episode? Mark is kind of an expert. Not an expert, he's making a face, but, but he knows more than most people about celebrity and pop culture deaths, especially strange ones. And here in L.A., he even took Forrest and I and some visiting friends on a death tour last year, and we felt like a lot of what we saw on that tour would make for a good episode of Astonishing Legends, especially the last house we visited. But we're going to save that one for later. Our first stop on the tour was the house where Canadian Playboy Playmate and 1980 Playmate of the Year, Dorothy Stratton, was killed when she was only 20 years old. Yeah, Mark, can you tell us a little bit about Dorothy? So Dorothy Stratton was, uh, she was discovered by some kind of seedy, kind of low-life pimp-type dude up in uh, British Columbia. His name is Paul Snyder. And she was just, I mean, I'm sure if you've seen pictures of her, but she's super pretty. And so he sent pictures of her into Hugh Hefner, and, you know, he he was kind of blown away, I guess. So basically brought her down here. She became a Playmate of the Year got into the kind of the Hollywood scene and as her as she kind of like got more popular her boy her kind of boyfriend who they were trying to just like put to the side cuz he was such a creep he was always lingering and so anyway she got into movies she made this movie they all laughed by Peter Bogdanovich they fell in love and they just it kind of became a thing with them the the movie Star 80 was kind of based on her life and they shot the movie actually in the place where she was killed which is kind of oh, an wow. interesting fact which is 10881 Clarkson in Los Angeles so basically they were her and her, her and Snyder were split up he had actually hired, hired like a private detective to like follow her around so he was clearly cuckoo and you know she went to his place and he invited her over they were just going to settle up something she was going to give him some money or he was going to give her some money or something and basically he was there ready to kill her he shot her and then he shot himself and uh, the her, she's buried in Westwood, and her grave has this super weird epitaph by it's a, it's like a quote from a farewell to arms. Doesn't really make sense, and it just says you know we love you, D period R period, and I guess that was her middle initial, and that's what Peter Bogdanovich always called her D R. And the weirdest thing is he got involved with with her younger sister, and he the rumor is he had he made her had plastic surgery so she looked more like Dorothy. Wow, which is. 
why is seeing these locations appealing to you? Well, I mean, you know, whenever you see a place where something crazy went down, it just has a different feeling. You know, like me and my friend jumped over the, the gate to where the Manson killings happened before they tore the house down. And, like, there was still elements of the house there. And it just had this, like, obviously, you know, it was probably manufactured in our heads, but it had this, like, crazy aura of, like, evil. It's all perception, I'm sure. If you said to me, oh, this house over here is where the craziest thing ever went down, all the John Wayne Gacy murders, this happened right here. Oh, my God, look at that place. I can tell. It's weird. Oh, actually, no, it's the one next to it. Oh, Okay, yeah, that one. I can really sense evil, you know. <clears throat> right. So it's but you, so you don't think there's anything to those feelings when like well, it's real in that something weird happened there and it's I mean, yeah, if I was in that house and like staying there or hanging out, you know, somewhere where something happened, every little weird thing that is normal would freak me out. You know, or any noise uh, everything has meaning. So have you ever experienced anything that you couldn't really explain that you felt like was tangible proof of life after death or a ghost or anything like that? No, have I'm you ever still, seen a UFO? No. Have you ever... No ghosts. I mean, I'm still... I would love to see one, and, you know, I don't actively pursue any of that stuff, but I'm very open to it. But, yeah, nothing, really nothing. I mean, aside from this, just the Manson thing, weird things, that which is all just, that's that's really nothing super strange. So getting back to your Dearly Departed tour, after we saw the Stratton house, you took us some other interesting places. Where Marilyn Monroe died, then like kind of to the Mommy Dearest house where Joan Crawford lived and the whole crazy shit went down there. And then obviously there's there's like, then you get into Beverly Hills, there's some like, that's where you get into like Bugsy Siegel, the Menendez brothers... Lana Turner, Johnny Stompanato thing. That's kind of one of my favorite. Why don't you just, a lot of people probably don't know that story. I'm not really an expert on the story, but Lana Turner, huge movie star, and she kind of was into like bad boys. And this Johnny Stompanato character was, he owned, a, I think, a store in West Hollywood. But he was just kind of a sleazeball, and he was associated with Mickey Cohn. And it was just a super kind of violent, abusive relationship, and uh, she wanted to end it but kind of couldn't. And anyway, one night, it was actually after the Oscars, she came back from the Oscars, and he was at home. And they were arguing, and her daughter took a knife from the kitchen, went upstairs to where they were arguing. came outside basically just like walked right into the knife and pretty much was killed fairly instantly there's a whole bunch of other stuff whatever lawyer came over it took two hours before they called the police did she do it did the girl do it now which which mobster are you talking about here okay Stompanato was not that famous the guy he worked for was famous that was mickey cohen he was sent to la by meyer lansky to work with Bugsy and work on the Flamingo. Kind of work for him. Yeah, work yeah. for him. And Cohen was instrumental, apparently, in setting up the race wire, which made all the uh, Vegas betting work, was having a, a wire for the race results. But Mickey and Bugsy worked together. And after Bugsy got shot, Mickey got pretty freaked out and had had several attempts on his life, including something oh, happened in his house. Well, right? they, they, they tried to blow up his house. And, Here in L.A.? Uh, yes. Yeah. So... After that, he hired a bodyguard, and that bodyguard was Johnny Stompanato. 
and Johnny was the one that was dating Lana Turner. Now, and and the thing about Johnny was he was a rough guy, you know. He and he had he'd been in the war too. Uh, he he fought at the Battle of Okinawa, which was a nasty piece of business. And, yes. Um, but you know he was a mobster. Now I think by her description is that she, uh, you know, he was also kind of a you know a handsome guy, uh, mysterious, you know, soft spoken. You know, quiet, strong presence, which probably attracted her to him. But then when she started to find out, well, this guy's got ties to the L.A. mob, which was a pretty violent and uh, wild uh, kind of error for Los Angeles. As much of a badass as he was, who was badder than he? Well, the the ultimate bad man himself, Sean Connery, the only man. Because <laughs> Give us a little bit of that story. Lana was shooting a movie with Sean Connery called Another Time, Another Place. Stompanato went over to the set with a gun and threatened them. At which point, Sean promptly took the gun from him and basically <laughs> chased him off the yeah. set. Yeah, <laughs> it's like oh, this is, this is a, a gangster, and Connery's like putting him out on his, I'm not on, his yeah, on yeah, on your bike. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, but uh, Stompanato, you know, I guess not a great guy, and Mickey, I don't think was particularly close to him. Because after he died, he put him in a cheap coffin and sold all of his love letters to Lana to the press or something. Yeah, I think he was just considered muscle yeah. and, uh, and and became troublesome with his antics, especially when you start dating one of the best known and beloved actresses of the time and you're causing problems. That shines a light onto their activities, and they can't have that. Okay, so that covers some of the more famous cases in Hollywood, but what about the not-so-famous ones that honestly tell you a lot more about Hollywood's reality? Yeah, this was a good one. We came to this little house, a little overgrown house, just off Benedict Canyon, which Mark talks about. We took this drive last October, right? Yeah. Uh, let's get back to Mark. He tells it best. Well, it, this was around this was around Halloween-ish. So, I mean, you couldn't ask for a more perfect... This thing looked like it was, you know, from Universal Studios, already staged, directed, like a miniature wooden cobwebby dirty windows it's hard to down it, it, and the connection to the Manson thing there's never really no connection other than basically off the same street off Benedict Canyon which is off Sunset so you're basically right by the Hotel Bel Air it, we knew it was a place because it was the weirdest looking place and spookiest place ever where this lady was found dead mummified after sitting there for a year in front of a space heater and I mean it was just unrecognizable mummification had to be identified through whatever DNA, I suppose. Who was this woman? Her name is Yvette Vickers. She was a Playboy Playmate originally, and then she was in Attack of the 50-Foot Woman, Attack of the something else, giant leeches or something. Horrifying, mysterious creatures thirsting for lover's blood. She was in a couple of movies that had a, something about giant things. I don't know why. I don't, I don't know if she... Went for Mark's, that or, uh, oh, Mark's background in a vet is, is a little vague. Well, I, I just want to know, uh, <laughs> tell me a little bit about her career. Her, well, her all right. Career. So she was she was born actually on my birthday, uh, not the year, mind you, but uh, August 26, 1928. And she died circa 2010. Uh, not a whole lot of people have circas these days because <laughs> they, they're not really sure when she died. Well, they know when she was found. And I think the coroner— In the last time she can, was seen alive. Yes, yeah. and they can kind of uh, back uh, back time that to yeah. a specific date, but the, nobody knows the, the exact day. Right. And she was she was a B-movie actress, and she had her first picture. She had a small part in Sunset Boulevard where she was credited as Yvette Vetter. And she had an ongoing professional relationship with James Cagney who cast her in a few things. 
And then eventually she was famous for her shape, and she was 36, 24, 36. She herself said there, there were a lot of uh, directors of photography and cameramen who always kind of wanted to shoot her from the back at that stage in her career. So she took a risk and became a playmate in July of 1959 in a centerfold that was shot by Russ Meyer, famous exploitation director who did Faster Pussycat Kill Kill and a lot of other movies. But she wasn't ever sure whether that Playboy centerfold was a, a good move or a bad move. But uh, several of the pictures, which you can find online, were shot in the house that, that we're talking about. So that, that, it's kind of crazy. There were, at, at the time, it was a nice little bungalow, not, yeah. not overgrown. So it lent itself well to kind of intimate portraits like that. Right. There's a connection to some of our other stories that we covered in this piece tonight. But one, one being, of course, that she was in Playboy, just like Dorothy Stratton. And another interesting thing is that she dated Cary Grant for a while. She dated Lee Marvin as well. She sort of knew everybody, and she was raised by jazz musicians, so she was into the beat scene and um, actually recorded a jazz album later in life. But the interesting thing about the Cary Grant relationship was it was it was a pretty real relationship, and she described him as a very loving, humble, down-to-earth guy. And he sort of he, – he mentioned that he – you know, he hinted around that he was looking to get married, and she was not interested in it because she had had some bad marriages. So ultimately, he broke up with her to marry Diane Cannon, and, which she was fine with. They were friends. It was amicable. Everything was fine. But then in a strange twist of events, uh, Diane and Carrie lived at that house on Cielo that later became the Tate house, the murder house, So, which was not too far from where Yvette was living. So it's all, you know, everything. It's a very small society. It's uh, celebrities and actors. It's an exclusive club. And the other interesting thing is is if one person can get a hold of another through managers and agents, and that's how people make connections. It's like if you go to work and you go to the lunchroom and you say, hey, does anybody know of a house for rent? And word gets out. And that's why you'll, it's not unusual for a, you know, a nice property in the Benedict Canyon or, or uh, Beverly Hills or Bel Air house to be uh, to be rented by five or six famous people during its uh, the course of its life. Right, right. All right, let's get back to Mark. And actually her but her very first part which is kind of tied it ties into her life in a weird way is she was just a, I think an extra or a very small part in Sunset Boulevard, the Billy Wilder movie with Gloria Swanson and William Holden in which Gloria Swanson plays this ex movie star recluse. Norma Desmond. Yeah, Norma Desmond. I, you know, I'm still big. It's the pictures that got small. And so her life, in a weird way, paralleled Norma Desmond in that she, be, you know, she was a star. I mean, Norma Desmond was probably a much a bigger star, but she became this kind of lost her looks, became extremely paranoid. You're talking about Yvette. Yvette, yeah, became paranoid, very reclusive. And basically just trapped in this house, almost, I guess, literally to where it became her tomb. What What about her neighbors? Like, why didn't people notice? Didn't? Well, yeah, that's the weird thing. It's like, you know, I, I guess there was... There Who was found her? A neighbor that knew her was walking around, I guess, was walking around supposedly... I don't know how you don't see this after two months, but I guess after a year of no mail being picked up. I mean, you know, I mean, geez. So obviously there was this yellowed mail and stuff. I don't know if they were trying to stick it in the front door and it was just like piling up. And eventually someone looked over there and said, oh, this is strange. So the neighbor basically opened the door, walked upstairs, and then up in this little room, you know, she just saw this space heater was on. And next to the space heater was 
this mass of person mummified looking whatever a mummy looks like the vet was so paranoid about people trying to mess around with her she was like i mean she's kept getting fan mail up till the end supposedly wasn't somebody didn't she have a stalker or something or like well supposedly she recorded a bunch of like hang-ups and she filed a report with like the bel-air police department you know i think she was just kind of this old crank who maybe was being harassed by someone i imagine her, her probably her phone number was probably in the book i mean it's just like a perfect metaphor she was trapped in this place. The, the neighborhood said, we're all very private. We're all very respectful of each other's privacy, but maybe too much, which is, you know, especially an LA thing. That's the weird thing about Los Angeles or some of these big towns. You could have someone next door to you dead and you don't ever talk to your neighbor. You know, people don't talk to your neighbors. I don't necessarily either, so I'm not saying I'm, I'm some holier-than-thou guy that's, like, walking around checking No, I, I, you know, I'd heard—I can't remember who said it, but I'd heard a quote once, you know, L.A. is the, the largest lonely city in the world or something like that. You, do, you spend all your time in your car or in your home. You're all constantly encapsulated. Now, I, I live in Studio City, and um, I've only been here a couple of years, and, and I did live in Los Angeles before, but not over in the part where all the studios are. And I constantly see people that I'm convinced were performers when they were younger— and they're, they've had so much plastic surgery. They're wandering around the grocery stores here in Bed Bath & Beyond, and they look like zombies. It's actually kind of scary, and it's also depressing, and it's the dark side of Hollywood. Because when Hollywood, if, you, if that's your thing, and if you're an actor, and it's, when it's done with you, it's done with you. Well, yeah, Hollywood eats its young is like what people say. I mean, you know, it's very, people, they're very disposable and, and brutally so. Once you're out, you're out. And if you're one of the five people listening to our show at this stage and you go online to our website, astonishinglegends.com, you can find lots of links and pictures with information about Yvette. She was a beautiful, yeah. she was a beautiful woman. There were some oh, yeah. pictures that were taken in the yard. 1950s, her first Playboy thing. And the, yeah, the, yeah, there's some in her, in her place. And yeah, she was really, yeah, she was pretty. All due respect to her, it's sad, you know. Um, it's a sad passing, but it's a it's a crazy story. It's the kind of story we like on Astonishing Legends. So, and hopefully, you know, she just died, and then like the mummy part didn't. It wasn't. Hopefully, she wasn't feeling anything. It just kind of she just expired, and then became a little mummy. Hey, everybody! If you're enjoying the show, please do us a favor and go to iTunes and give us five glorious stars so that others may find us. Yeah, we could use all the help we could get just coming out of the gate here. I'm Paula Pell, and when I'm alone and terrified, I listen to Astonishing Legends with Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. So what did Yvette actually die from? Well, the coroner found that she died of heart disease, which is, I guess, what gets us all in the end. Right. But I think, uh, yeah, she had uh, some heart problems, probably wasn't taking good care of herself. Yeah. I mean, she was sitting in a chair. Uh, she probably just had a heart attack, you know, and the space heater was on and the conditions were right. And... I think there's uh, there's two ways that uh, that I've heard when you're left unattended after you passed yeah, away. That's charitable. I know. Uh, you, you either dry up, if depending on the conditions, or you liquefy. And uh, uh, yeah, like no, breaking I, bad in uh, the bathtub, right? Well, no, that's that's aided with chemicals. I think oh, naturally. Yeah, that's right. Now, I'd heard a story uh, in the local Southern California area on the news, and again, it's it's the person who is, um, you know, passed away with no close relatives and is not discovered for quite a while, and this, uh, this poor woman who was uh, taking a nap on her couch and felt a drip on her cheek. 
Oh no! Please and doesn't don't. know what it. And looks up, and there's a spot on the ceiling. Ah, uh, yeah. And uh, yeah. Okay. So th- not to get too graphic, away. but that is that's the other way you go. Or uh, depending on um, maybe your your uh, body chemistry and the conditions in the room being kind of warm, you just kind of dry out, and uh, you yeah. I oh, and what was the was that the British thing you were talking about? Well, this is the look the the. This gets into the other, for me, interesting aspect. Now, I think Mark brought something else up as the most interesting aspect. But for me, looking at the empirical part of it, it's like uh, I think in both these stories, there, there was a young woman, kind of youngish, in in, uh, in Britain who had passed away, but nobody had noticed. And uh, then after like six months or a year or two years, they go into the apartment and it's like, well, the television, uh, the, 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 you know. The what? The telly was on. <laughs> or here was the, is that the, your British the accent? Jesus. No, it's not. No, you don't want to be, because everybody does when I, you don't want to okay, get into okay, that. But right. uh, if I get more back, uh, back uh, story on this, I might, I might launch into one. But here's another interesting aspect. It's been widely reported or taken as uh, part of the circumstances that the space heater was on when they discovered her. Right. I don't know about the television. No, it was on. No, yeah, the television, no, but the space heater was on. And that's my question. Who's paying the electric bill? How does these utilities stay on for so long? Well, you know, Mark came back for a follow-up that's coming up here towards the end of our piece, and he's going to talk about uh, how the bills were getting paid. Okay. All right, let's get back to him. So uh, after we finished, there was actually recently a Los Angeles Magazine article on Yvette Vickers. We did this show before that, so we just wanted to let everyone know, or I wanted to let, I don't know who know, but someone that we got there first. Not that we were, it was obviously people knew about it, but anyway, don't think, if you see that Los Angeles Magazine article, don't think, oh, they just saw that and thought it was cool. So anyway, Yvette Vickers had taken a, I don't know, she was on vacation, or she went, she would go on these weird tour things where they would, you know, she was selling autographs. I guess she actually kind of even got into meeting up with some of her fans. She would go to another state and hang out with a, someone she had met at these autograph things, probably some weird freaky fan, and she would go, nothing sexual, but I mean, I think she would just go and hang out with these people, probably would satiate her her need for adulation or whatever she would go on these trips where she would you know that she had met people on these you know autograph functions you know there's all kind of crazy fan things where the people go and spend 20 bucks to get an autograph from someone like Yvette Vickers I mean I guess they're you know there's obsessive people out there although I have an autograph collection but let's not get into that Um, she would go on these trips and then she put her mail on hold so when she came back she forgot to or just didn't put her mail back off hold so basically for that year or eight nine months where she was dead and kind of mummifying i guess the mail wasn't accumulating like crazy there was only a few letters that kind of got through even when you put mail on hold some letters get through so there was just like a few letters in there that had kind of yellowed and stuff but uh, it wasn't like an over you know it wasn't eight months worth of mail which is the one thing I was like, how the hell would you have that much mail and no one would notice? So that's why. And I guess when the lady came, the the, the, the friend that lived but nearby, you know, came to check on her, you know, she had opened up the mailbox and there were some letters in there, but there was a bunch of cobwebs. That's when she started to get worried. Supposedly she had a really bad feeling anyway, but that was kind of like, okay, this ain't good. And the only other bit of information I found out was that uh, I guess the house is actually sold now. I think for 275000 
It was on the market, I think, for four ninety five. Obviously, it's a major fixer-upper, but it's also got some strangeness involved that usually reduces the price by quite a bit. All right. Well, uh, thanks, Mark. For yeah. Coming in. Appreciate it. Um, I hope to go on some adventures soon and, and, and find ghosts or... Well, there's, you know, you haven't heard it yet as of this recording, but we recorded a story with some folks about the Queen Mary that's pretty cool. Something crazy went down in a room there where they spent the night. I may call the Queen Mary and see if that room's available, and uh, we might send you I don't think I can make it. (laughs) I think I'm backing out. No. We're going to send you down there. Anyway, uh, well, thanks for coming by. See ya, buddy. We'll see you next time. Okay. So, Scott, uh, that was a great interview with uh, Mark. Uh, he's quite a character. Uh, yes, he is. I can't wait to send him into the fray. <laughs> wait, what's the expression? That's not right. I can't wait yeah, to. Yeah, you can send him into the fray. Into the breach? Fray is pretty good. I'm sure into listeners are, like, banging you know, their heads we'll, against We'll come the wall. back to it. No, I was just saying that, uh, you know, once we try and get Mark out in the wilds, uh, researching uh, spooky things, things of interest... Uh, to cover them, and of course something strange happens, and then nobody believes him. That would be the best fate for Mark that I could imagine. Or nothing strange happens. Or nothing happens at all. And uh, The thing you know. about Mark is whatever happens, whether something or nothing happens, it's still going to be entertaining. Oh, sure. No, he's, a, he's an entertaining <laughs> At least in, in my mind. Well, there, there's one thing, though, that's um, an interesting note that I like to think about is I've gotten older and the passage of time. Everybody who now thinks they're hot and cool and gorgeous, and you are at the moment, but one day you will get old, and you're basically going to turn out to be a 40-pound bag of beef jerky. Let's, uh, let's wrap this up. Yeah, it's about time. If you actually liked our show, look for us in two weeks when we come back with a couple who found out they weren't the only ones in their cabin during a stay on the Queen Mary. I want to thank Judson Crane for our amazing theme music, Ryan McCullough for world-class sound design, and Jim Creative Design. But most importantly, we want to thank our listeners. You can find us online at astonishinglegends.com, on Facebook at the Astonishing Legends Podcast, and also on Twitter. Copyright Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Good night. Good night.